We're in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, from verse 18 down to verse 25, as we reflect on the birth of our Lord on this Christmas morning. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to see this morning the glory of your son, Jesus. We long to rejoice in him, to better see your love as conveyed through him. Would you help us in our hearts, orient our minds to behold the wonder of the gospel for your glory, we ask in that precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas again, everybody. Uh, What a special treat this year to be able to actually worship together on uh, Christmas morning. And it really is the most wonderful time of the year as we remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And uh, as we think about the nativity and the advent of Christ this morning, I want to bring to our attention this peculiar detail concerning his birth that I'm sure we're all familiar with. That is, that Jesus was born of a virgin, a young lady named Mary. And the question I want for us to ask today is, why is this important? Because I don't think we stop to ponder it enough. You know, we live in a culture in which Christmas has been popularized and commercialized into this big winter production. And it's only inevitable that the the biblical truth of Christmas kind of gets buried underneath all the holiday wrapping paper of American consumerism. And I wonder if the truth of Christ being born of a virgin is one of the foremost casualties where now it kind of serves just as a decorative detail for the Christmas festivities. And we have largely neglected and even forgotten the preciousness of its theology. I mean, after all, you know, we have rich theological hymns uh, that we just sang, like Silent Night, that exalts Christ as Lord, but they're just casually sung by pop stars as another part of the annual holiday performance. And so when you hear Beyonce singing the words, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, 
But then the very next song on the playlist, she's singing, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh. I mean, it just, it kind of cheapens the weight of glory concerning the birth of Christ. I mean, no offense to Beyonce, she has an incredible singing voice. But all this American Christmas show business, I fear, makes the virgin conception seem as just another cutesy garnish of a man-made holiday story. Like, Rudolph had a red nose. Jesus was born a virgin. Ha ha, Merry Christmas, everybody. But church, the virgin birth of Christ is not some fun trivia that serves as a mere ornament for our amusement. But the miracle of Jesus' birth, the fact that he entered this world through the womb of a virgin, it is everything. Because it communicates to us the heart of the gospel. Because by it we see the glory of Jesus, that he is God and man. The fullness of God, the very presence and glory of the infinite God in the fullness of real finite humanity as a man. This is heaven's joy to the world. The gospel, the good news of sinful man being reconciled to God because Jesus is the living, walking embodiment of the gospel, the inseparable, harmonious union of God and man in one person. Now, how does Jesus, being born of a virgin, show us this? Well, let's take it one step at a time and put two and two together and see what we end up with. Because first of all, it it is unmistakably clear in this passage that Jesus was a real person, a true human being, just like you and me. Notice the unremarkable language of Jesus' entrance into the world. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It doesn't say that he just plopped in from heaven, fell out of the sky, but he was born. You see, that sentence there in verse 18, in and of itself, is nothing out of the ordinary. I could easily replace Jesus Christ with any of your names, and that sentence would make sense. And it would simply introduce your birth story. We all have a birth story with a birthplace and a birth mother from whose womb we were born into this world. That's how human beings enter this world. And that's exactly how Jesus entered the world. You see, we, we commonly use this term, the virgin birth of Christ. But strictly speaking, virgin birth is a bit of a misnomer. This doesn't really say anything. Because the birth itself, the process of nine months of gestation and labor and delivery, that was entirely normal. That was entirely human. Nothing supernatural about it. Mary went through the whole nine yards of morning sickness, three trimesters, a growing belly. And that's why in Luke chapter 2, verse 6, which we read at the beginning of the service, it says that when the time came for Mary to give birth, when the time came, that is, nine months later, when she started contractions, her water broke and all of that, it was then that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. You see, what is recorded in Scripture is a completely normal, human, maternal process of labor and delivery. And out came this beautiful child who issued his first cry and his umbilical cord was cut and everything. The the, the basic human experience because Jesus was a real human being through and through 
just like you and me. And so calling it the virgin birth doesn't really mean anything because the birth was totally natural. But what was totally unnatural, what was supernatural and divine, was the virgin conception. And as we all know, babies aren't made in a magical factory and delivered to the front door by a stork. If only it were that easy. God bless all the mothers here. Mama, you the real MVP. But the only way that humans reproduce and conceive a child is through both a man and a woman. It's impossible for human life to begin apart from both a father and a mother. Every human being has a biological father and mother, regardless of whether or not there is a current relationship with them still. But notice in this passage, the repeated emphasis on the fact that Mary and Joseph had never joined together in intercourse. Verse 18 tells us that they were not married, but they were betrothed. Now, betrothal is a little difficult to explain for our culture because we don't have something exactly like it. But it's like being engaged. They were not yet married, but it was more than just a verbal engagement with the ring to show for it because a betrothal was a legally binding pledge to marry this person. And the way to call it off was not just to walk away, but to file for legal divorce, as we see in verse 19. Nevertheless, what's important to understand is that though they were legally bound to be married, they were not yet married in the eyes of God or society. And so they did not and could not engage in marital intimacy. That is to say, Mary was a true virgin who had not yet known Amen. But it says in verse 18 that before they came together, before they consummated their marriage, Mary was found pregnant with a child. And how is that possible? If she had never known a man, it's because this child was from the Holy Spirit, as verse 18 says. There was a miraculous, divine origination of life in the womb. But Joseph didn't know this at first. All he knew was that Mary was pregnant, and he knew in his clear conscience, that child in the womb is not from me. I never touched her. Oh my goodness, apparently Mary's been promiscuous with another man. Now I love this about Joseph. Verse 19, it says that he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, and so he resolved to divorce her quietly. What a merciful and gentle man, a true gentleman. He wanted to protect her dignity, despite the wrongdoing he thought she committed against him. And so he was determined to quietly file for divorce and let her go. And I'm sure he was grieved and heartbroken at first. But verse 20, as Joseph was preparing to do such a thing, God sent an angel to intervene and tell Joseph in a dream, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's not because she's been immoral that she is pregnant. And I know you, Joseph, you haven't been intimate with her, but listen, that child in her womb has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, by the very presence and power and will of God. That child is of supernatural conception, not of human origin, but of divine origin. And upon hearing this from the angel, Joseph followed through on the betrothal and took Mary as his wife in marriage. 
Now, at this point, someone might think, ah, okay, but see, look, it says they eventually got married even while she was pregnant. So maybe it was just confused timing. It says Joseph eventually married her. So perhaps Jesus was conceived immediately upon marriage and the consummation thereof. And he was just a naturally conceived child just like us. And what Mary thought were pregnancy symptoms a couple months before uh, of, of morning sickness before they were married. Maybe it was actually food poisoning from the really bad falafel she ate or something like that. No, but look in verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but even so, verse 25, he knew her not. He was not intimate with her until after she had given birth to this son whose name was called Jesus. Do you see the constant emphasis in this passage? Joseph did not lay a hand on Mary. Joseph could not be the father. And Mary was not promiscuous. She she knew no man, no human being was the father. Jesus, therefore, is of divine, supernatural origin. He is of divine nature. Not the son of Joseph, but the son of God. Now, let's try to put two and two together. First, we saw very clearly that Jesus was born just like us. Every indication points to the fact that he was a real human person. In fact, Jesus' humanity was never in question all throughout his life, even from the most vicious of his enemies. None of the unbelieving crowds and Pharisees and religious leaders who hated and rejected him ever questioned whether or not Jesus was human. They knew he was. I mean, to deny his humanity would have been an unthinkable and nonsensical objection. They were talking to him face to face. They knew him to be a man just like them. And, and the, their rejection was actually on the grounds that he was just a man, not the son of God. And so he's clearly human. No doubt about that. And yet we just saw that he's clearly of divine nature. His miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, it shows that Jesus came directly from God. He is not of this world, but it is as though he descended and entered this world from another world, from heaven, where God is because he is God himself. Who else is at the throne of God but God? Jesus is divine by nature and origin. And so which is it? Is Jesus of human nature or is he of divine nature? Is he man or is he God? And the answer is yes. Both. Both and. Full human nature and full divine nature united in one person because as John 1:14 says the glory of God the eternal word himself became flesh and dwelt among us God almighty came down to us and entered this world by taking on true humanity joining himself to human nature why in order to save us As the angel announced to Joseph in verse 21, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from 
their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. It means the Lord saves. This is the truth and glory of Christmas, that God descended from heaven to us by becoming a man. The infinite creator coming to us in the likeness of his own creature, a human being. This is what we call the incarnation, God taking on human flesh. Now, you might be wondering, gee, this is really complicated. Now, I barely made it to church in one piece on Christmas morning, and now I've got a headache trying to wrap my mind around this impossible paradox. I mean, why did it have to be this way? Why did God's plan of salvation have to be so mind-boggling and so impossibly complicated? It's because the problem of sin was impossibly complicated. It was a conundrum that was unsolvable. Because as sinners, we have gotten ourselves into an unsavable hopeless condition where we have no way out but to be punished for our sin. You see, the Bible tells us that God created this universe and everything in it, and He created it as good. And as the crown of His creation, God made human beings in His image, like you and me, to reflect Him and His glory. And we are to do this through through a relationship of trust and submission and loving obedience to his perfect and loving authority over us. Much like a young child with his father. Only that God is a perfect heavenly father. And it's in the confines of his governance and perfect will for our lives that we find all of our safety and peace and happiness. This is how good God is. That he is glorified not at the expense of our happiness, but that He is glorified as we find our highest happiness and satisfaction in Him. But despite having received everything from God, we all rebelled against God. From the first human beings, Adam and Eve, all the way down to every single human being today, you and me. This is what we call sin. Rebellion against God, who is the perfectly loving and generous Father in heaven, in whom all our joy and purpose and fulfillment and meaning is found. You see, sin, it's utterly irrational. It makes no sense. Why would anyone ever disobey and rebel against the one who is so good, who is the source of all joy and comfort and peace? And yet we all have. And all this simply reveals to us how corrupt and evil our sinful hearts really are deep inside. That we could have any inkling of a propensity to refuse the one who is infinitely good. We're all sinners, rebels against God. And so what then? What's bound to happen as a result of the fact that we're sinners? Well, here's the basic problem. God is good. Sinners are not, by definition, because we've rejected the authority of the one who is good. And God is not just relatively good. He, he's not just a pretty good God. He is the perfectly good God. God is goodness. He defines what goodness is. 
And so God, in the perfection of His goodness and His purity and His holiness and His justice, His eyes are too pure to look upon evil, as Habakkuk 1.13 says. And so what that means is this, God cannot condone sin. God must punish sin because He is good and just. That's what makes Him the God of perfect, praiseworthy justice. That as He Himself declared in Exodus 34-7, that He will by no means clear the guilty. He will not leave sin unpunished. God can't just let it go and just be nice. See, imagine that someone, a very evil man, a vile criminal, broke into your home, and God forbid... God forbid, suppose that this person not only robbed you of your belongings and ravaged your house, but that he harmed your family, did unspeakable things to them, and eventually capped it off by taking their lives. And your neighbor called the police, and this perpetrator was caught and detained by the police, and several weeks or months later, this man stands trial before the county judge, and you are there at the trial in agony and misery. And as the judge is about to issue the final verdict, imagine that the judge says to this criminal, you are vile for what you've done to this family. You have destroyed innocent lives. You've committed a heinous evil. You deserve life in prison. But today's your lucky day because I'm a really nice guy. You know, I, I really don't like it when people call me mean. And so I'll tell you what, here's my final verdict. I'll let you go because I'm so nice. No punishment for you. Have a nice day. Now, as you're there hearing these words, you would be fuming. And rightly so. You, along with the rest of the people, would be right to wonder, what just happened? Was there bribery involved? Was there blackmail? Because this is corruption. This is wicked injustice. This judge is evil. Because righteousness and justice must be served against this guilty criminal. You see, in the same way, God cannot be just nice about sin. Sin must be punished. Because God is so good and because He is just. And the punishment that fits the crime of sinning against an infinitely holy and good God is an infinite punishment of eternal proportions. It is to experience the unleashing of God's righteous wrath forever, for all eternity. This is what all mankind is destined for. It's what we all deserve as sinners. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how moral or upright or religious we deem ourselves to be, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's perfect glory. But let's go one step further. And this is very important for us to understand. As the righteous judge who is so thorough and blameless in the exercise of perfect justice, God demands that the punishment for the crimes must be paid by the offending party, namely, by human beings who rebelled against him. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done, whether good or evil. You see, God will not punish another. That means that this is a done deal. No matter which way you slice it, no matter what possible recourse you can conceive of, humanity will pay for sin. Even if a legion of angels were to be so kind to offer themselves as a sacrifice to pay for for the sins of mankind, that would not satisfy the requirements of God's perfect justice because man sinned and so man must pay. There is no way out. But, but, But here's the problem. Even if there were a man so selfless and altruistic who would be willing to pay for the crimes of his fellow man, First of all, that man himself needs to be perfectly holy and blameless. Otherwise, a- any payment for crimes would be just, it'd be going to him, pay for his own crimes, not being credited to someone else. But, but what man is there who is not guilty of sin himself? And secondly, if this hypothetical man were a real man born into this world as a normal human being like you and me, then how can one man die for a multitude of sinners? I mean, shouldn't it be one-to-one? That doesn't seem like a fair exchange, right? For one man to account for the sins of millions of men and women? And not only that, there's a whole other issue with the fact that we're talking about the infinite wrath of God that such a man would have to absorb on behalf of all of those he intends to save by standing in the crosshairs for them, as it were. But what finite man is able to withstand an infinite outpouring of divine wrath. I mean, let me put it this way. Throughout the Bible, God's wrath and punishment is described by the metaphor of a cup, which he will pour out upon sinners. And by virtue of the fact that this cup is the infinite wrath of God, it's not like your favorite little coffee mug. This cup is like an infinitely large body of water, bigger than the Pacific Ocean. And and this is really uh, what the account of the flood and Noah's Ark was picturing for us, wasn't it? That even that global flood back in Genesis, it was but a shadow, a, a drop of an infinite outpouring of divine judgment. And yet even so, that shadow was so vast that it submerged the entire earth, engulfing even the highest mountains of this planet. All this to say, no finite man can withstand the full outpouring of God's wrath, which is like an infinitely large tsunami. No matter how good a man's intentions may be, he will fail to sufficiently stand in the place of others. I mean, look, if we're at a beach for a church picnic and we see a tsunami coming our way, I can say all I want. Hey, you know, as your pastor, I feel the need to be sacrificial and lay down my life because I guess that's what good pastors do. And so everyone get behind me. And when the water comes, I will slurp it all up. <laughs> yeah, right. Good luck to me. And if you're smart, you would say, see, ya, I knew you were crazy all the time. You know, so you get a head start running the other way. You see, no man can take on God's wrath and withstand it first for his own sake, let alone for the sake of a multitude of others. Now, God can. He is infinite. 
and eternal. Only he can take on that which is infinite and eternal. But again, remember the issue. The perfect justice of God demands that man must pay for sin. Man must be the rightful recipient of God's wrath because man is the guilty party. You see the conundrum here. The paradoxical, unsolvable problem. Sinners are ruined, stuck in this hopeless, unsavable, unredeemable state. Because if anyone will be able and willing to stand in our place and bear our punishment for us, it must be another man. But because the nature of this punishment we deserve is infinite and eternal and holy wrath, only God himself can bear something so vast and immeasurable and be himself sufficient enough of a refuge and fortress for us to hide within. The only solution is that which is impossible, inconceivable, unimaginable. What we need is a Savior who is God and man. Not a mixture of some part God, some part man, but one who is truly God himself and who is truly a man. Who then is such a Savior? Sufficient to save us. Friends, his name is Jesus. For he has come to save his people from their sins. He is the man who is God himself. Because he is God incarnate. He can take our place as true man. He can be the rightful object of God's wrath. And he can take on the infinite outpouring of God's wrath in the place of sinners. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. On behalf of all who confess their sin and put their trust in Him, He drank that cup of divine wrath dry. Every drop of it, so that not a drop would fall upon those whom He came to save. This is why God sent His eternal Son into the world through the womb of a virgin to show us the immeasurable grace and kindness to sinners as revealed and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ who is Himself the impossible reconciliation of God and man, the harmonious union of full divine and full human nature. This is the beauty of Christmas. That Jesus has come to be the only Savior, sufficient and able to save us from our sin. And it's because He came 2,000 years ago, born in a manger in Bethlehem, that we can sing today with joy and thanksgiving. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled and what an amazing thought that God came God visited us not to punish us as we deserve but he came to save us to bear our sins upon himself you see the good news of the gospel is not simply that God came to us period Because God's coming, His visitation in and of itself is actually terrifying news for sinners like us. Because as unclean sinners, we cannot stand in the presence of His holiness and perfection and purity. And indeed, 
Christ will come again in the future. He will return at the end of the age to render final judgment, to give sinners their rightful due of eternal wrath and condemnation. And that day will be a terrible day for all who have not turned to him by faith, been forgiven of their sins, and clothed in his righteousness. Because God's coming is a terrifying reality. But the amazing inconceivably good news is that 2,000 years ago, God came not in the fullness of His unrestrained rightful glory and the unleashing of His holy wrath, but that He came covering up His glory with the humiliating robe of true humanity, born of a virgin, entered his creation as a weak, frail infant. This is the grace of the incarnation, the manner in which he came to us, the purpose for which he came to us with such undeserved love, kindness, and mercy. That's why Matthew quotes the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, which was foretold 700 years ago, or 700 years before Jesus' birth. And he says in verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God against us as he should to guilty sinners like us. But he came so gently, so mildly to us, born as a little baby, to assure us that he has come to be with us and for us, to dwell among us. He came as true man to live the life of perfect sinless obedience on our behalf and to die the death in the place of sinners, suffering the wrath of God, so that He might take on our punishment and we might take on His spotless righteousness to enjoy peace with God for eternity. Now, why in the world would God do such a thing? Because God so loved the sinful, rebellious world that He gave His Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish as they deserve, but have eternal life in Him. You know, as many of you know, last year, right around this Christmas time, our son was born. And so I wasn't here to preach for Christmas service. But instead, I was at home with my wife holding our newborn baby boy. And with Christmas and just the incarnation of our Lord on my mind, I remember just being in awe of the gospel in a fresh and vivid way as I was holding my son, this little baby who was just over seven pounds now he's like a hundred (laughs) pounds but the wonder of it all that the mighty hand of God that should strike sinners with the justice of his outstretched arm was instead there on the first Christmas morning these little hands that were wrapped around Mary's little pinky 
at the mouth of the living God that should have opened to pronounce His just condemnation upon this guilty world was instead on that morning the mouth that opened and cried in desperate search for His mother's breast, so dependent on her whom He had created. At the eyes of the omniscient almighty God, the holy eyes too pure to look upon sinners were the very eyes that day that stared so peacefully into the eyes of two sinners whom he would later learn to call Mama and Dada. If you ever doubt the love of God for sinners, just look at the incarnation Look at how far God stooped down to save us. Look at the infinite distance He descended from His heavenly throne of glory to be born of a virgin into this God-forsaken world that He might redeem such God-forsaken sinners at the cost of His precious life. This is the gospel. This is what Christmas is all about. Christ Jesus who came to save sinners. And if you're here this morning and you have not embraced Jesus as your Savior, this is God's love and grace freely extended to you that simply by confessing your sin to God and trusting in all that He has done to pay for the sin that you could never pay for, you can be reconciled to God, at peace with Him, forgiven of all of your sins, enjoy His love and be His child forever, never to fear the punishment or the weight of guilt as you deserve because Jesus has paid it all. Come and receive by faith God's gift of undeserved love and mercy in Christ. And church, let us never forget this mystery, this wonder, this grace. That this is why we can say Merry Christmas, not dreadful Christmas. Because Jesus is our Emmanuel, God who came to be with us so graciously, so mercifully. May the joy of Christmas be the celebration of our hearts, not just once a year in December, but every day of our lives and well into eternity as we rejoice in Christ our Savior who was born unto us from a virgin's womb, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you for sending your Son to us. Thank you for the richness of your love and grace to sinners like us who deserve anything but this. But this is your glory revealed in the person of your Son, the very grace of God incarnate. And for that we praise you and we thank you. And help us to praise you and thank you all the more as we better grasp each day the wonder of the gospel and the vastness of your immeasurable, inconceivable love for us. 
In the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.